first crisis we've ever had, and it certainly won't be the last. So let's learn from history so we can be prepared now and in the future. Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich. This is the first day from the fundraising school, and we're so grateful to have you with us on this podcast. And first, I just want to call out, no, we did not have our bumper music, and we did not have our normal graphics uh, that you've associated with this podcast over the last two years. And that's because as Indiana University has put into place their social distancing policies, they have closed the recording studio. We've had great leadership and management from Mike Anthony in that studio, uh, but now that studio is closed down. Uh, and I'm so grateful to the fundraising school staff, Jennifer Baufman and Dr. Sarah Nathan and others, who in a very innovative way have come up with uh, the ability to record these podcasts via Zoom technology. So uh, again, a little bit of different look, but the exact same top quality substance, including today with my colleague, Dr. Kathy Bodisher. Kathy's been with us numerous times on the podcast and rejoins us. You'll remember that Kathy leads our graduate programs at the master's and doctoral levels. She is an ethicist. She's created a new course for the fundraising school that's been designed and taught on ethics and fundraising. And Kathy is also a historian and the lessons from history can inform our fundraising today and into tomorrow. Kathy, welcome back to this podcast and uh, this novel coronavirus. The coronavirus is novel, but dealing with crises in these ways is not. And you've got a great example from history that we can learn from. I do. Thank you, Bill, and um, thank you to Jennifer and Zoom technology, um, because the, the three of us, Jennifer and Bill and I, are in three different locations, and um, this is um, a spontaneous way of going about this, uh, which we know from human resilience uh, will continue. So um, since I have been quarantined, um, and we are on spring break. I have uh, been rereading and reading some books that I have not had a chance to look at. And one of the things that um, I have reflected a lot about in the last few days is how informal philanthropy rises when there is a, sort of a vacuum of, of normalcy, which is certainly what we're experiencing now. And there are two really neat stories that I wanted to share with you today that come to us from the past, from the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, believe it or not. Um, and your listeners may know that San Francisco was um, small-ish, a boom town, uh, with, but with not a lot of infrastructure in 1906. So the earthquake and ensuing fire um, essentially leveled the city. But informal philanthropy uh, really shone through and um, I have two examples. So one is um, if you can imagine a, a, a city of, of rubble and, and shanties and people displaced, um, there's a, a lady who was a, an ordinary person like like you, like me, like Jennifer, like any of your listeners, um, named Anna Holtzauer. And Anna was resilient, the model of resilience. So she gathered together what she could find in, in her, her area. You wouldn't call it a neighborhood anymore. I mean, she cobbled together sheets and blankets and made a tent, okay? If you can picture that out in the open. And then, um, essentially, she built a soup kitchen with things that people donated and shared um, because 
a disaster like what we're living through now is in a lot of ways a great equalizer. And so she started her soup kitchen. She'd feed anybody who would help, or was around, who needed help. And it, at its peak, the um, earthquake happened in April. And um, at its peak, she was feeding, Anna was feeding 300 people a day. So in the nearby boom mining towns from Nevada, people started coming in with wagon trains of supplies. And so a particular team that came from Nevada called her cat her her soup kitchen, the Mitzpah Cafe, M-I-Z-P-A-H. And Mitzpah has a couple of different um, etymologies. Um, from Hebrew, this word means an emotional bond, even among those who are physically separated, which mm -hmm. we're all quite physically separated from each other. Um, or the, um, the root word means a place of sanctuary or peace. And so for 90 days, Anna ran the Mitzvah Cafe. And so it's a, it's a beautiful story. What is more important is this is one of many, 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 many. This was happening all over you know, what had been and then went on to be San Francisco. And what observers saw and what, what got reported to us, we know this from the press, was old notions of in-group and out-group melted away for a while. Mm -hmm. And so what we're tracking now, random acts of kindness, um, different um, philanthropic organizations and media outlets are compiling stories of kindness and generosity and reciprocal help um, because strangers share not only things, but information, right? We're all sharing information frantically. What have you heard about this? And I have this update. And, um, and so that's a sense of comfort when everything is disrupted around us. So um, this is not unique to this disaster, but the Mitzvah Cafe um, really stuck with me when I read this quite some time ago. And so I reread it and I, I felt inspired and comforted. That's a great story. The other big outcome that a lot of people are going to recognize is um, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, Dorothy Day, mm -hmm. was an eight-year-old child living in San Francisco when the earthquake happened. Wow. And that experience, uh, in many ways, informed what she wanted to do with her life and how she built the Catholic worker with um, her colleagues, with Peter Morin and, and the team that she surrounded herself with. And I want to, I don't usually read this to you, but I want to read, this is a quote from Dorothy Day. It's, she wrote many years later, 25 years later after the earthquake. She said, what I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindness of everyone afterward. Mm. My mother and our neighbors worked morning to night cooking. They gave away anything extra they had. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. And so this sense of community and sharing rather than, there were charities that came in and they, the people uh, who, who asked for help uh, from a formal organization uh, felt 
less empowered, they felt more vulnerable. And so years later, when Dorothy Day uh, converted to Catholicism and founded the Catholic Worker, this sense of self-help and including how she raised money because she asked very humbly for anything extra and she received a lot of, as you probably know, um, in-kind donations and um, donations of space and um, extra utility power and food and whatever people could spare, but and created a community. All the Catholic worker spaces were these bastions of self-help where nobody had to feel embarrassed that they needed something. And so um, I'm, I volunteer for a social service agency that um, helps vulnerable people through difficult times. And so I've been thinking hard about this notion of mutual aid and self-help and how can we be walking together on our fundraising journeys um, and not um, and not be patronizing. And I, so I think that that's a great reminder for regardless of the field that you're in, the specific part of um, philanthropy and fundraising. Um, so let me pause and then we can talk a little bit more. Yeah, well, Kathy, I just want to say, as we're coming up on our time here for this yeah. particular podcast, uh, I heard at least three or four takeaways as fundraisers mm -hmm. today that, that we can apply and see if you would agree with these. Number one is resourcefulness. Mm -hmm. uh, that the two examples that uh, you provided were people being resourceful and then related to that, seeing opportunity amidst tragedy. And, you know, again, as leaders in the nonprofit sector and as fundraisers, that's what we need to be able to do. Uh, and then that people are philanthropic. Uh, we believe at the Lilly Family School Philanthropy that philanthropy is part of the human condition, uh, that people will respond philanthropically when provided an opportunity to do so. Oftentimes, it can happen in these informal ways uh, that, candidly, our data don't always count very well, if at all. Uh, mm -hmm. And as a fundraiser, where you do need that formal philanthropy, the fourth takeaway I have here, Kathy, is that we need to show direct impact. That's true always in fundraising, and I would surmise even more so in these times of crises, when levels of urgency are elevated, we especially need to be able to show our connection to impact as these two examples cited. So four takeaways, agree? I agree. All right. Well, Kathy, we're so fortunate to have you with us on these podcasts as we can learn from history, apply those lessons today. Uh, and again, we wish you the very best, all of you in our audience, uh, as you're practicing your social distancing as best you can in the nonprofit sector. We know for some of you, that's virtually impossible uh, with the person-to-person -person assistance that, that you're providing, uh, doing your best to provide those physical spaces when you are serving others, uh, and continuing to fundraise. Don't stop. That's a key message through all of this. If your case was strong two months ago, your case is strong now. Be empathetic towards the donor. Let the donor know uh, that you understand where they're at. Uh, if you're not able to make an ask right now, continue to tell your stories. Let them know how this crisis is affecting you, but continue to maintain those relationships with your donors. By the way, if you want to maintain your professional development, these podcasts are archived online and the fundraising school is still open for business. Our online courses are still going strong. All this information available on our website at philanthropy.iupui.edu forward slash the fundraising school. With Dr. Kathy Boniture, I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and now you are now more up to date on this first day from the fundraising school. <laughs>